after gradually weakening in, um, through most of the first three quarters of 2008, the economy's taken a dramatic downward turn in the last few months. Um, essentially, we find ourselves in the midst of a deep recession, and this recession is stretching into its second year. This contraction is more severe than we've seen for some time. In fact, the data clearly indicates, I believe, uh, that if you have, that you have not lived through an economic contraction this severe as an adult, unless you came of age before disco. South Carolina, with its relatively heavy concentration of manufacturing activity, has felt the full force of this downturn. The state's unemployment rate has now reached into the double digits, and firms have shed jobs on balance uh, over the last eight consecutive months. In the past, these job losses uh, have been felt um, beyond manufacturing uh, over the last year, uh, extending across most sectors of the economy in South Carolina. This recession has coincided with a period of severe financial stress uh, in financial markets in the U.S. Major, many major financial institutions in the U.S. and around the world have taken large losses, especially on assets related to mortgage finance. To many people, the financial conditions have become the defining characteristic of this business cycle, and the distressed conditions in our financial institutions are, for them, a key factor inhibiting of the return of economic growth. So in my remarks today, I'm going to argue that uh, financial and economic conditions both stem from the same set of fundamental forces, and that financial and credit market developments are largely the result rather than the cause of the economic slowdown. As always, the views I express will be my own and may not coincide precisely with the views of all my Federal System colleagues. The proximate cause of the financial market turmoil, of course, um, is the home mortgages made uh, from late 2005 through early 2007, near the end of the long boom in U.S. housing uh, that began in 1995. Because of the decline in home prices and thus home equity since the peak of activity in 2005, mortgages made near the peak of the boom, especially in the subprime and non-traditional categories, are experiencing much larger losses than people had expected. There's a long list of suspects for the cause of the boom in home prices and construction, including public policy to promote home ownership, financial innovation, low interest rates. I, uh, in the past, have emphasized the possibility that risk-taking incentives in financial markets have been distorted by the actual and perceived uh, government financial safety net protection. I've also emphasized, however, that much future research is going to be needed uh, before economists can confidently gauge or quantitatively the relative contributions of various factors. Whatever its causes, however, the housing finance boom set the stage for the turmoil that's plagued financial markets uh, since the middle of 2007, when the potential scale of home, of home mortgage problems became more widely appreciated. The turmoil intensified in mid-September of last year, and volatility has been elevated since then. The stress has shown up in the form of large losses to financial institutions, increased interest rate spreads for a wide variety of credit market instruments, and a broad pullback from the securitization of mortgages and other forms of credit. The general sense of caution in financial markets has been the result of three major categories of uncertainty that financial market participants have faced. 
The first concerns the aggregate amount of losses on mortgage lending. And some uncertainty still remains on this score, since the ultimate losses are going to depend, importantly, on the as-yet-unknown extent of the decline in home value. Second, financial market participants have faced uncertainty about where these losses will turn up. Since mortgage risks were split up and spread widely, both within the United States and abroad, through securitization and the use of the insurance capabilities provided by credit derivative contracts. Third, market participants have at times faced uncertainty about prospective public sector support. The disparate, varying responses to potential failures in several high-profile organizations last year may have made it difficult for market participants to forecast whether official support would be forthcoming for any given counterparty they faced in financial markets. Speculation this year about the possible structure of government rescue programs may also be contributing to financial market uncertainty. I believe that most of what we have seen in financial markets since the summer of 2007 is fairly intelligible in light of these sources of uncertainty facing financial market participants. Apprehension about potential losses caused lenders to demand higher risk premia in interbank lending markets for institutions with at least some presumed exposure to uh, mortgage-related losses. Some borrowers were unwilling to pay higher premia for term loans, and they shortened the tenor of their funding. Others were willing to pay unusually high premium in order to lock in funding to protect themselves against an erosion in their counterparty's perception of their creditworthiness. Thus, if, if we observe that a particular credit market at, at a particular term, for example, is frozen or clogged or, or uh, dried up, that may not in, indicate dysfunction per se. It just may indicate portfolio reallocations that are occurring in response to changes in risk assessment by market participants. While the most common reading of these events is that the disruptions to credit channels have pulled the economy into a deeper decline, assessing the effects of financial market turmoil on economic growth is not as straightforward as it might seem. One popular notion is that credit market disruptions we've seen over the last year or so impede the financial sector's ability and willingness to extend credit to households and business firms and thereby creates an additional drag on spending. But causation can flow in the opposite direction as well. When overall economic activity seems poised to contract, the outlook for household income and business revenues deteriorates as well, and borrowers become less creditworthy, all else constant. Moreover, consumer and business demand for lending declines when they cut back on discretionary spending. My reading of current conditions is that the economy is holding back credit markets more than credit markets are holding back the economy right now. The unprecedented response by the Fed and the government to financial market development is now a well-known story. The alphabet soup of new lending programs, capital injections for large banks, as well as targeted assistance for specific institutions have supported market segments that are at the heart of the turmoil we've seen. They've also limited the losses borne by many market participants. Now, while equity holders in large financial institutions have seen the value of their shares erode substantially, government and Fed actions have also shielded many debt holders from losses. This is the effect of the federal financial safety net protection that I believe raises the greatest concerns about moral hazard. Our response to this crisis has extended well beyond what were perceived in the past to be the boundaries 
of that protection. And that raises important questions about how markets will expect us to act in the future. As we emerge from this extraordinary episode and look to restructure our regulatory framework, I believe that it is of paramount importance that we also clearly define the boundaries around future safety net support. Ambiguity about who is or is not too big to fail contributed significantly, in my view, to the incentives of large financial institutions to pursue strategies that were focused on leveraged growth and off-balance sheet risk. And those ultimately added to the instability of markets, I think. Redesigning our financial regulatory system before establishing clear boundaries around the financial safety net would be like putting the cart before the horse, to quote a famous economist. Personally, I believe we should scale back the boundaries of the safety net, because in my view, the cost of containing the moral hazard effects of widespread government support exceed the benefits of avoiding financial firm failures. But in any case, our choices regarding whom and how to regulate in the future will need to be commensurate with the implicit as well as the explicit safety net. I've been discussing the effect of credit markets um, on uh, the decline, uh, effect on credit markets of the decline in residential construction activity. That's what kicked this whole thing off a few years ago. Um, that decline has also had a large-scale effect on overall economic activity. At first, it seemed like the impact was isolated to the housing market. And GDP actually expanded at a reasonably satisfactory rate in 06 and 07, 2.4 and 2.3% respectively. But strains became increasingly evident in the economy in 2007. Manufacturing pr uh, production uh, peaked in July of that year. Real disposable personal income peaked in September of 2007. And consumer spending growth then slowed, uh, dampened as well by the decline in household wealth due to the fall in housing prices. Payroll employment ultimately peaked in December of 2007, a date the National Bureau of Economic Research later named as the transition point between expansion and recession. At first, the recession seemed fairly mild, similar to the last two recessions. Payroll employment, for example, fell by 137,000 jobs per month in the first eight months of 2008. But in September of last year, the recession intensified. We've lost three and a quarter million jobs since then, and all other major gauges of economic activity have been dismal since then as well. With jobs, income, and wealth declining, it's no surprising that consumer spending weakened further last year with real expenditures falling 1.5% over the course of the year. As conditions deteriorated for many businesses, capital budgets were slashed. New investment in equipment and software fell 11% last year in inflation-adjusted terms. And while a number of large construction projects were underway when the economy turned, new commercial construction activity also uh, began to decline last quarter. Based on such indicators as a steep decline in activity at architectural Engineering firms last year, I think we're likely to see a continuing fall in the construction of offices, stores, and other types of non-residential buildings throughout this year. At this point, then, it's safe to say uh, that this recession will be at least as severe as the recessions of 1973-75 and 1981-82. Despite the evidence of uh, bad news, however, Prominent forecasters expect the economy to bottom out at some point later this year 
and then gradually regain forward momentum. And I think this is a reasonable expectation. First, I believe we've already received the bulk of bad news from the housing sector. New single-family housing starts have fallen by 80% over the last three years, so there's little room for further decline. With new construction activity now low, population growth is gradually going to absorb the excess supply of housing that exists in many localities. Similarly, auto sales have fallen by 40% or so in the recession, and are now well below the rate at which cars and trucks are, are wearing out or uh, disappearing from the fleet uh, because they're totaled in accidents. Simple replacement demand is going to put a floor under auto sales going forward. But with this bad news behind us, is there any, are there any favorable signs? And I think the answer is yes here as well. First, economic history teaches one not to underestimate the power of monetary stimulus. And monetary policy has been highly stimulative since this recession began. The federal funds rate is five percentage points below its peak. And the size of our balance sheet, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, has doubled in the last six months. This stimulative policy stance is likely to begin to show its effects on overall economic activity by year-end, I believe. I'd also note that one source of economic stress last year was the extraordinary run-up in gasoline and other energy prices in the first part of the year. That shock has now been reversed, and lower gasoline prices have been giving a welcome boost to consumer buying power. Moreover, despite weak labor markets, Wages have not been slashed wholesale, and as a result, total wage and salary income has held up remarkably well. In nominal terms, there's actually been a slight increase in wage income since the recession began, and total personal income after adjusting for taxes, transfer payments, and inflation has risen almost 3%. Last, but certainly not least, one can now point to a couple of positive economic reports, although one always has to take a, a given month's report with a grain of salt. To cite one example, retail sales of goods and services. Consumers increased by 1.7% in the first two months of this year. Maybe a sign consumers are responding in the manner suggested by economic theory and basing their immediate consumption plans on less adverse long-run income prospects. This is a key element in the case for the economy bottoming out this year because most forecasters expect improvements in consumer spending to lead private demand growth this year and for investment spending by businesses to turn somewhat later. I think that's the right outcome. Having said all that, though, it bears repeating uh, that uncertainty about the economic outlook is particularly acute right now, and that while there are indications consistent with the emergence of positive momentum, by the end of the year, we're likely to see some negative economic reports in the meantime anyway. So you may have noticed that I've not mentioned so far the recently enacted fiscal stimulus program. There's a fair amount of uncertainty about the effects of such a boost uh, to economic growth. And I believe that many popular accounts overstate uh, the likely effects, though. You may recall that we had a fiscal stimulus program in the midst of last year. I think the evidence indicates it failed to keep the recession from intensifying. Such disappointing results are actually quite frequent in the historic record. Keep in mind that today's stimulus will have to be paid for at some point in the future and that the prospects of higher taxes can uh, possibly restrain activity now as well. Moreover, some spending merely diverts workers and firms from other uses, other activities that they would have been engaged in, rather than drawing unemployed resources into uh, the active economy. My overall sense is that the stimulus is likely to have only a marginal effect on the broad contours of the economic recovery going forward. 
You may also have noticed that I have not yet mentioned inflation, um, an important oversight, an oversight for a Federal Reserve official. Overall, inflation was below 2% last year, uh, I'm sorry, earlier this decade, um, and began to trend higher in 2004. It reached 2.5% in the middle of last year, as measured by the 12-month gauge, uh, the 12-month change that we went through. Much of that acceleration last year reflected energy prices. And with oil prices down, inflation began to subside last August. For the 12 months ending in January, inflation has been fairly low, 0.7%, 0.7% Looking ahead, some economists are forecasting inflation will persist at a low level for several years on the grounds that substantial economic slack is generally associated with declining price pressures. I would be cautious, however, about relying on this correlation as a causal relationship, however, even though it is detectable as a correlation in many data sets. I am confident that we can prevent, the Federal Reserve, outright deflation by expanding our expansive monetary policy stimulus, which need be. But at the same time, I think it's not premature to be concerned with the behavior of inflation when the recession is over and recovery has begun. We've engineered a tremendous expansion of the monetary base over the last six months, and the statement issued by the Federal Open Market Committee last week announced a further uh, rapid expansion that lies ahead. This is an extraordinary policy response, and I believe it's appropriate. But such a large increase in the monetary base cannot be left in place indefinitely without, without creating quite sizable inflation pressures and inflation risks. Choosing the right time to withdraw that stimulus will be a challenge, and I believe it will be very important to avoid the risk of waiting too long. The monetary liabilities, as I've said, of the Federal Reserve Banks have more than doubled over the last several months, from around $840 billion at the, in the week ending September 11 to around $1.7 trillion the week ending March 18. Virtually all of this increase was in the form of bank reserves, deposits that uh, balances that banks hold at their local uh, Federal Reserve Banks, and that went from $8 billion to around $780 billion over that period. The rest of the base is paper currency. This increase in the Fed's money supply was a direct consequence of the collection of credit programs that we initiated last fall. Prior to October, the Fed was able to sterilize new lending through offsetting asset sales that soaked up the additional bank reserves, which otherwise would have increased the monetary base. After October, the cumulative amount of that lending became too large to sterilize, and further lending just drove up the monetary base, added to the money supply now. Luckily, the implementation of these large credit programs coincided with a time in which additional monetary stimulus was warranted. But it's important to remember that monetary policy and credit programs do two different things. Monetary policy stabilizes the purchasing power of money over time by keeping the price level stable and relatively predictable, and by so doing, contributes to maximum sustainable economic growth. Credit policy is also aimed at promoting growth, but it's more of a form of fiscal policy in that it uses the public sector's balance sheet to alter the allocation of resources. In this instance, credit market interventions have been financed to a large degree by the issue of new monetary liabilities, but they, just, they could have been uh, financed just as well uh, through non-monetary liabilities, such as U.S. Treasury securities. The debate about whether the economy is more in need of credit policy or traditional monetary policy actions at this time 
is based on competing understandings of the relationship between credit markets and aggregate economic systems. There's no debate that with dire economic conditions upon us, a strong response is warranted. But the best type of response, credit policy versus monetary policy, depends on which of these competing theories is a better understanding of how our economy actually works. While this could complicate policy choices as a general matter, the good news right now is that credit and monetary views yield complementary policy implications because policies to provide targeted Fed credit also add reserves to the monetary base and provide monetary stimulus. Both of those are warranted right now. More difficult choices could be coming down the road if improvements of credit market conditions and the overall economy don't coincide. That concludes my remarks. Thank you very much. It's been a delight to come here with Charles.